Welcome to Mysterious Goings On. We're going to get right to the show after these messages. This is Michelle Cox. I'm the author of the Henrietta and Inspector Howard series, and you're listening to Mysterious Goings On. You know, W.H. Auden said that thousands have lived without love, but not one without water. And we live on a planet that is, what is it, three quarters covered by water. Yeah, but here's the, here's the rub. It's beautiful, and you can sail on it. You can do plenty of things, but you can't drink all of it. That, I think, as we look forward to uh, the next millennium for mankind, is going to be at the center, I think, of a lot of potentially um, uh, extinctive issues for us as a species. And that's why I'm very excited to speak with uh, a novelist who really understands and um, can describe beautifully in her book about where we are, the potential perils of where we are with our water supply as humans. And that is why uh, Nina Montianu is with us. She is a Canadian ecologist and internationally published novelist of science fiction and fantasy. In addition to eight published novels, she has written award-nominated short stories, articles of in nonfiction books, which have been translated into several languages throughout the world. Recognition for her work includes the Midwest Book Review Reader's Choice Award, finalist for Forward Magazine's Book of the Year Award, the SLF Fountain Award, and the Delta Optimist Reviewer's Choice. Nina is a member of the Writers Union of Canada and SF Canada. She regularly publishes reviews and essays in magazines such as the New York Review of Science Fiction and Strange Horizons. She serves as staff writer for several online and print magazines and was assistant editor-in-chief of Imagicon, a Romanian speculative magazine. She currently writes for Amazing Stories. She's also editor for Ego Publishing House in Romania and Europa SF, a zine dedicated to informing the European SF community. Nina hosts the Age of Water podcast with co-host Claudia Mergen. It's a podcast devoted, as you might guess, to exploring water and environmental issues. They also do monthly interviews with scientists, visionaries, authors of eco-fiction, and technologists on matters of the environment, climate change, and what we are doing to make a difference. You know what? I cannot wait to hear drop by drop what Nina has to say about water, fiction, and more. Nina, welcome to Mysterious Goings On. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. So, water. I don't expect you to tell us every detail of your journey to becoming <laughs> an ecologist, but um, not everybody grows up wanting to be an ecologist. I'd love to know what inspired you. Wow. Ecology and limnology. Um, those are kind of two different stories, but um, I was always interested somehow as a kid in basically in ecology and, and the environment. I used to play outside all the time in the forest with my older brother and sister. I was a little, the youngest, the tag along, right? Come on, yeah. come on over here. Okay, sit over there, do this, be the table and we'll do the, you know, you know how little kids are. Uh, anyway, right. <laughs> but we would go outside in the forest behind our house and, and it was a glorious forest. Uh, I grew up in Quebec, Eastern Townships. Uh, Maple Beach, gorgeous Maple Beach, hardwood forest, 
mixed forest and we would play games and we would tell stories. Essentially, I was a storyteller from a little, you know, little kid on and we would make magic potions and and all kinds of stuff and weave a whole story around it. We had casts of thousand characters that would, you know, do things right. Action, adventure, that sort of stuff. And uh, it just grew from there. <laughs> the interest in water uh, is a different story. I was actually scared of water. And um, as a kid, I couldn't swim. That was part, part of the reason. Uh, I just had these, these thoughts of drowning. Um, so my older brother and sister, they would go out and cavort in the water. They were always arguing and you know, dunking each other and stuff. And I, I would stay on shore and study it like Da Vinci, you know, Da Vinci was uh, a studier of, of water. He drew it, he drew it, it looked like hair. It looked, you know, how it flowed, the vortexes and all these types of uh, patterns that water forms, the surging waves, etc. And so I turned my fear literally into a fascination. Oh, and I, I learned how to swim. <laughs> That was important too, right? So that next thing you know, I, I'm, um, I'm a limnologist. I made it into a career and I just jumped in boats and, and zoomed around lakes and rivers and studied the water and, uh, and always felt this connection, deep abiding connection with it. You know, uh, Da Vinci, uh, he kept notebooks. And I think one of them was, uh, one of his to-do list was to, uh, study the woodpecker's tongue <laughs> i'm not sure if Whoa. he ever did <laughs> oh but... he studied all kinds of things that man he was amazing he did. but but that i think that's why I, when you mentioned eventually and you talk about what you're the limnologist and i i'm going to confess that i consider myself fairly uh, well read as obviously i even knew about the the woodpecker's tongue incident uh, but i have right. never heard <laughs> Lim, when I hear limnologist, I think of limner, like limb that's light. Now, is is that similar, or what, uh, are, we, what oh, are we talking very, about? Oh, very, very close. Yeah. Um, well, it actually comes from limnos, uh, the Greek for water. Actually, limnosology, the study of fresh water. So it's basically <gasps> uh, limnos, as opposed to other people thinking when they hear limnology, they think limb. As in oh. the study, the study of limbs, <laughs> anatomy, and such. So it's interesting uh, that you bring in the word light. So there's got to be some kind of connection, some other kind of connection there. But yeah, it's gonna, it's that's its root. Limnos meaning I'm water. To, I'm, I'm going to look Fresh into water. Limner, like because I, I remember when I was a very young writer, I wrote something. It was a short story called Limner, and it was about, and it had to do. It was, a, it was a terminology of light and shadow. Maybe all I know, it could have been something else, but, uh, and I am yeah. old, so my memory yeah. is starting to fail me on this, but fascinating. So, so limnologist is, uh, is the, is the thing in Canada, of course, and, uh, it has incredible bodies of water. And I think mm -hmm. most Americans, at least the ones I know, we all believe that though I'm sure it, we're sure it does have its, uh, endangered areas with pollution, et cetera. We believe that Canada, or and you, you will, of course, disabuse me of this notion. I believe that Canada has got these very pristine spaces compared to most places in the world. And actually, I believe it also probably has the one of the largest supplies of fresh water in the world. Yep. Right or wrong on both counts? Right, right on both counts. But here's the here's the rub. Uh, it's it's not because we're 
particularly good at preserving it, well, oh. uh, preservationists or conservationists, it's simply because we're so scarce ourselves <laughs> compared to the area of the country. The country is huge, um, as is uh, the U.S. The difference is the population, right? We have about, oh, a tenth of your population, if that. It's about 40 million, 40 million or so, something, something like, like that? Something like that. And, and we're all yeah. concentrated in the lower part. And, and the boreal zone, consisting of the boreal forest and other vegetation associated with the boreal zone, is all uh, very scarcely populated and therefore more pristine, at least on a local level. So the, the huge lakes there um, and riverway, riverways and, and water bodies that are not touched by us because we're simply not there. The indigenous folk, on the other hand, are all over, but they right. are a whole different, almost like a whole different species, need I say. They are, they are in tune with their environment. Um, there's a huge difference. We don't have to go into that as much. But uh, so the bottom line is where we have these huge spaces simply because humanity or settler settler uh, people have not gone there and just cut all the forests down and everything else. So the water bodies are more intact. So it, it, it strikes me as I, I, I may have been um, implied at the beginning of the show that uh, Canada, I think, will one day, if not sooner than later, be a, a major player in the world as we are seeing with climate change. We're going to see massive uh, uh, I think I think massive uh, migrations and massive battles over re natural resources, not the least of which being water. Is that something? That, and I promise we're getting to your book there. That I take oh, the yeah. long way. Can That's you, a can you tell? There <laughs> you go. So, just wondering, then, Nina. Um, I'll just leave the question right there. What do you think? Is Canada someday going to be a battleground, or is it going to be a powerhouse because of this? Or what do you foresee in your work? Wow. You just you just created that that you know divergence there. Which one is it? And it depends entirely on on our people and our government and how we uh, essentially re respond to the pressures by other jurisdictions, other countries, and the world generally. Canada has the potential to literally be the wetland of the world, and what I mean by that is. Uh, as to steward the water that comes to Canada, comes through Canada. The water cycle, of course, is global, right? We have the right. hydrological cycle that cycles water from the air through the oceans, through the rivers, fresh water, etc. There's a continual renewal of the water that's here. Water's been here for a long time. It's basically the same, the same amount of water basically exists on a planet from the time of the dinosaur when the dinosaurs quenched their thirst in the triassic you know i mean that's the same water the same water think of it and it just cycles all around the planet we, we lose a little bit to space uh but we also gain a little bit through comets etc that drop water off because water's in the entire universe right which is also very cool but anyway to go back to 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 that um so Canada or any of the any of the land bases serve as a temporary, if you will, a temporary place like a hotel, 
for water, mm. right? The water comes in, it spends a little time there. Oh, here's a spa here. We like to spend more time, like a reservoir. I shouldn't say reservoir. There's problems with reservoirs uh, in a lake, right? So spend time more in a lake. There's a spa. We want to spend time there. And, 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 and um, all lakes have a, what's called a water retention, a water storage capacity, right? So water will stay there longer, like the Great Lakes. And then move, keep moving on. Water's always flowing, always moving. So nobody, the concept of owning water is is one of our problems. And in fact, nobody owns the water. We don't own anything really. We, we, we can discuss that too. Uh, that's political, right? But in, right. in a practical sense, we don't own it. We can't hang on to it forever. As you mentioned earlier, things, water is a, a perfect example, uh, an archetype, if you will, of, a, of flow, of the, the need to let go accept and let go if you think of it even in terms of a way of thinking a worldview even so canada to go back to canada and your initial question is a a steward is a repository for a large proportion of the water that comes and goes and one of the reasons is because we have all these glaciers there and large lakes that act to keep that water there for longer than let's say in a river or if it just falls on the ground and then evaporates away through the trees, evapotranspiration. So there's a water spends more time there. And because of that, what we do with that water, whether we do it responsibly or whether we do it irresponsibly is, is an important aspect. So I'm not going to go into politics or anything like that because I don't really want to. <laughs> There's, I mean, we could get into a huge discussion about, about that, but the choice is there and, and you're very right. I think it, it becomes, it, it, having said that I'm not going to go into politics, it does become a political issue. It is political. Okay. Yeah. The reality well, is, sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, sorry to interrupt, I, but the, but the, you made this wonderful point that we don't own the water, but we, as nations, do own the access to water. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, right. And in your book, uh, Diary of the Age of Water, um, there is a geopolitical issue here. Uh, as I believe you said, China owns the U.S. and U.S. owns Canada. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I'll be quiet. <laughs> tell us about the tell us about the book. We don't have to go you know specifically political, but tell us the setting if you don't mind. It's fascinating. Okay, I will just a little, but I want people to read the book. So, so oh, that's no, I don't want you to give that's, it all away. <laughs> yeah, now that's an intriguing feature, and, and it it gets people right as soon as you say that, which is why I said it like that. It, I think in the blurb, it's in the in one of the blurbs, it gets people thinking. Oh my God, yeah. how can that be possible? What does that really mean? Does that mean that you know? <laughs> um, so, <laughs> it's. I guess to, to say it in a nutshell, it is based on real precedence, real mm -hmm. premise, the premise based on real events, water wars, water jurisdictions, things that are going on right now between other countries. And the current scenario between China and the states, trade issues, everything else that's going on, the debt, huge debt of mm -hmm. certain countries to other countries, Etc. Etc. We're all in debt, right? And who are we in debt to? And who calls in what debt to who? Etc. Etc. 
comes down to that sort of scenario. And uh, I, I played around with some interesting um, possibilities in this book and, and then how they played out uh, essentially is, is how I'm going to explain it. Right. And, and, and it, it looks fascinating. And you've got the, the water twins. Um, so tell us if you would about the, who were the, the protagonists of the story? Okay. Uh, I'll step back a little bit because there's essentially the story um, showcases four generations of women okay. um, and their unique relationship to water. <clears throat> so there's, they're all related to each other. So first of all, there's, uh, there's a, the main character is in fact, the limnologist diarist, the, the diary, the one who creates the diary. And on either side of that, that, so that's embedded in the story, but the story actually begins with the last generation. Uh, now a, a being, a water being, in fact, with four arms, and she's a blue water being. Her name's Keel. And she's in the dying boreal forest, and uh, we don't know exactly when, but we, we gather it's in the far future sometime. And she is being inducted into uh, what's called the Exodus, and she has to prepare for that. And we don't know what the exodus is yet. <laughs> anyway, anyway, I'm not going to tell you either. So um, you have to read about all this. So read the book. <laughs> right. So uh, in doing so, she has to go to the library and and prepare herself. And she discovers this diary from the time, which is the near future right now, 2020 onward into the 2060s by this limnologist. And that's one of the characters, obviously. So the diary itself showcases her own thoughts, the diarist and her mother, who is an activist, a water activist. And uh, as I've already mentioned, the diarist is a limnologist. Right. And then there's her daughter who she protects, she's overprotective of because she felt uh, because of her mother was an activist, she felt she felt abandoned, so she's overprotective. It's natural inclination, and of course, what this what happens? Her daughter becomes an activist too. It's always like that, right? With kids, <laughs> if you have kids or not. But anyway, we try our best, right? And so there's that that kind of interaction between the generations, but also there it explains their relationship with water as well being unique for them and then of course it, it moves on back to the far future and so the diary is actually nested in a larger story a larger story that you might say, might say is metaphorically about humanity uh humankind's own journey so it's all about little micro journeys connected to water and our larger journey again connected to water yeah, and all the reviews are indicative that it's a beautiful story, well told. And of course, you're going to oh, leave this story thinking about our relationship to water. And um, so I wanted to ask you then, um, you know, um, as an ecologist, as a limnologist, did you start out, and again, if this is too inane of a question, you can dodge <laughs> it and answer, answer some other question. Um, did you start out, though, as an ecologist, limnologist, and say, I, I want to, I need to express these these issues about water that i am so devoted to uh, and i need to find a vehicle or 
was it more of the case of I'm a writer, always have been, used to do little plays, radio plays with my siblings when I was little and I wrote all the scripts and directed. Was it that person or did it was it just a, a thing that came together all at once? It was like I'm going to take my passion in the real world, I'm going to fictionalize to try to share it with people in an entertaining fashion. That's a great question. And and, it, and, and of course it's all of them, sort of both. Can't really separate those because that's all me. But yeah, mm. you know, as a limnologist, um, I'll just start with that because uh, that's sort of how it really went. You know, I always, always wanted, you know, I've been an limnologist for about 25 years or so, maybe more. So I always wanted to help people understand and appreciate water. Um, and one way, this is the lay public, right? Who aren't scientists. Mm -hmm. right. So one way was to create a, an entertaining but informative layman's textbook. So on water, a biography of water, if you will. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I finally did that in 2016. I came out with Water Is, a publication uh, that actually received much acclaim. In fact, it even got a nod from Margaret Atwood. Ooh environmentalist herself yeah she talked about it in the new york times which was great um nice. so fresh from that endeavor i kind of felt compelled to write my next novel about water and uh it didn't come about right away uh, in the meantime i was asked to write a short story by my publisher in, in rome and and I wanted to basically write something that was geopolitical about water. They wanted something that was environmental. So um, I, you know, I was always thinking about the ironies in Canada, you know, Canada being a water rich heritage. And mm -hmm. so the premise that I wanted to explore was the irony of people in a water rich nation experiencing water scarcity. I mean, yeah. that's an interesting possibility, right? So living in a, under a government imposed daily water quota of five liters a day while meantime, bottling companies and utility companies are taking it for other purposes, right? So that's right. how you create, literally create this water scarcity scenario. So the story was called A Way of Water, The Way of Water, and it was published uh, by uh, Minzioni Edizioni in Italy, and then it went all over the place. It kind of went viral, uh, was picked up by a number of anthologies. So it was about a young woman in near future Toronto, who's run out of water credits for the public WTAP. By this time, houses no longer have potable water and their water taps have been cemented shut, not unlike what happened not too long ago in Detroit uh, for people who couldn't pay their water tax, right? Yeah. So, um, so she's standing basically two meters from, from water in a line. She's standing in line waiting and she's dying of thirst. And so there's that, that irony, right? And you don't know what happens, but <laughs> anyway, so the other spark, so that, uh, that character becomes the daughter in this book. So the other thing that's kind of sparked it, so it's always like that. I, that's how ideas for books come about. I mean, I, like you say, I'm a writer, so I pick up on these things and then suddenly it reaches a, a point of, not more than inspiration, a kind of a, there's a word for that. It sparks it all together. And then next thing you know, you have something going on. So the next spark of inspiration came when I attended a talk in Toronto uh, by Maud Barlow, 
um, with the Council of Canadians. And it's based on her book, Boiling Point, which is about the current water crisis in Canada. Again, an irony, right? People don't think right. of, of that, but it's true. Yeah. If you read her book, it's, it's, it's amazingly, uh, well, it's very telling anyway. So my attention was caught by a young mother and her six-year-old girl. She may have been even younger than that. Sitting, sitting in the balcony. This was done in a church. Maud Barlow was talking in a church, which was great. So I thought, what kind of mother would take her little girl to a political talk on water in Canada? So the direst character, Lina, is the little girl, and her mother, Una, were born, and that sparked the story. I had, I had my story now. So you see how it works? It's really cool. So it, well, what it is is the idea percolates, uh, and as a limnologist and as an ecologist, I'm always thinking of those elements. I, I consider myself an eco-fiction writer, a climate fiction writer now, I didn't used to, but now that brand is out there. The, those words are out there. So um, I've, you know, snarfed. I've... And that's what my, most of my stories are about. And then an incident or something that I capture will spark that. It's, it's almost like it's an incendiary, right? You've got this smoldering fire it's, it's almost sort of how to make a fire right you've got all the tinder pieces you've got the mm. the the sticks and the everything put together and the paper even but you need that something to light it up right and yeah. that usually comes from a some kind of a personal experience an inspirational type thing in some cases uh, in one case for a story it came from a a picture uh, or a, a painting that someone had created and it just required that that thinking and it sparked a story from it so anyway that's the, how it came about the, the most glorious moments as a writer or when those things uh, it strike or, or you're or they're observed and uh i i told this story once before i was i've been stuck on something for my last my latest book i'm finishing up now and I was mowing the grass and I just, I don't know where it came from. And it, it had nothing to do with mowing the grass, but I think it was just the fact that I stopped thinking about it and I focused just on being mindless yep. and mowing the grass. And then boom, I stopped, stopped the mower in the yard, ran inside and wrote it down. And boom. <laughs> I love that. I love yeah, that. Everything, so, <laughs> everything's working. Julia Cameron, I don't know if you know her book, uh, The Artist's hmm. Way. She writes no. about, uh, she writes about something similar to that. But uh, she talks about the S things, think, the S activities that, that put us into that, uh, I don't know what to call it, that way of thinking where, where our brain is, is one part is shut off so that the other part can roam, but we're yeah. still doing something. And it, the reason she uses S is just, it was arbitrary. So uh, steering, as in driving, steering strolling, showering. Uh, think of all the S, S words in terms of doing something that's sort of routine. I was trying to think of an S word that covers what you were doing. Shopping. Uh, shopping. Yeah. Mowing. Well, mowing starts with an M, but you know what I'm saying, right? Um, right. When we get into these things, uh, going for a walk in nature, right? All these types yeah. of activities that are, I guess, uh, they require some physicality, 
so that that part of our brain is is occupied with the physicality so that their upper conscious part is occupied that way allowing the subconscious to roam freely it has to be some kind of routine activity that doesn't uh, fully occupy us and i i kind of wonder about the steering part we really should be paying attention to the road properly (laughs) but but i guess you know if you're going on the same trip all the time you're you could do that right and i get lots of my ideas that way oh yeah absolutely uh, yeah, so there you go, writers. Don't try so hard is the, is the lesson I'm gleaning from this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, yeah. Don't force it. Uh, you know, as we wrap up here, Nina, I want to ask you, though, is it burdensome <laughs> being a lim- limnologist? Like, do you ever sit down uh, at a restaurant? I don't know if they do this where you live, but here in the States at a nicer restaurant, they'll put just automatically put down a glass of water in front of you before you even order. Is there a burden to constantly thinking about water? I mean, if somebody put that proverbial glass of water in front of you, are you looking at that water and thinking about why did they give me this water I didn't order? I, I this is this is a waste of water, or maybe oh I needed that water. How do they know? I'm just curious. How does your mind work when it comes to that? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question because it's it there's a balance, and it comes down to the need for balance too, um, and I have to constantly grapple with that myself because yes it is I do feel it as a burden sometimes it's it's like knowledge right the more you know the more responsible you pretty much have to be based on what you know which is I'm guessing one reason why we seek ignorance on purpose um, or subconsciously so that we don't have to know so we don't have to behave responsibly considering that we know having said that once you know that's it right so then how do you deal with that balance and uh, I have the same problem when I'm walking in the forest or in a path or in a park and I see littering Uh, I have a real pet peeve for that and uh, how do I shut off my brain if I'm not picking up the litter which which I tend to do actually I'll just pick it up and that's it right yeah yeah um and it does annoy me. <laughs> uh, so I don't have an answer to that. I, I, I mean, I, I'll, the answer, I guess, is that I do grapple with it. I go back and mm-hmm. forth. And it depends on my mood of the day, depends on other elements that come into play. But I am constantly seeking the balance. And what I have to do is tell myself sometimes that uh, here's a, a, a moment where I could enlighten somebody, educate Mm -hmm. them. And I often take that role. Uh, I will say, uh, I would prefer not that you don't do that. And I'll tell them why. So I have no problem with confrontations. And um, that doesn't have to be a confrontation. It, It can be a moment of a teaching moment. And I mean, my background is in teaching, and I am a teacher. And I find that if I don't do that, that I feel a bit more rankled. If I do express myself and educate and help mm-hmm. with awareness, which is really part of why I write in the first place, then right. I feel better and, and uh, the person can take that information and do something with it or not. That's up to them, right? But then I have done what I feel is the best. So action is always good, but coming from a good place is important as well. 
So that's that's the part that I have to learn. <laughs> uh, well, I'm with you know. It's funny you say that. I uh, we have a kind of a, a road abutting our property. We have a fence, but people, it's one of those roads where people just dump garbage. I don't mean like big trucks loads of. I just mean they yes. throw a, a yep. lot of bottles, a lot of little yeah. plastic booze bottles, little um, you know waste. And so the other day it was a warm day, first one of the spring, and I I just took my recycling container and I went out there and I picked up all the glass and I picked up all the trash, separated it. And, and it was a, I filled up a whole container and then I filled up half a trash uh, bag. And the, the, the thing that made me, it made me feel good just because that's where it's where, where I live, but lots of cars drove by and saw me do yes. that. And I'm just ho yes. hoping, hoping Nina, that some of them are going to drop back. Like, wow, you know, actual people live there and don't necessarily yeah. want me dumping my crap on the side of they the road. Hoping, hoping. Hoping and, and, you, and, and you, that's that's exactly it. And you will never know, but there's that part of you deep down that does know that it does make a difference, even if it's one person. And that's how it works by doing, by showing, then the others will will uh, respond in kind. And in fact, just to, to speak to the littering um, again, <clears throat> they've shown, they've proven that when an area is cleaned up, it's less likely to be littered again. I mean, literally. So Is that right? Know, yes, it is. So you're doing two things at the same time. You're cleaning up and people are seeing you do it. I've done this as well. I, I took on a, I literally took on uh, one section of a stream that, that goes through a gorgeous part of, you know, a little road goes through there. And they have to stop because it's a, a one lane bridge and everybody who stops to just throw their stuff. Right. So there's right. gobs of litter right there. And I, I hated it because I, every time I go there, I used to go there all the time to just to be with nature. So I wanted it clean for me, to be honest. <laughs> so I took it on and I would just stop there and pick up litter. I took it a step further. I had a little flyer that I, I wrote up about why it's so bad why litter is so bad to the streams right. and all that kind of stuff. And because the cars had had to stop, I could run up and give them the flyer. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so many of them thanked me. Some rolled oh. up their, their, their window real fast so I couldn't get to them. But most of them were, uh, you know, themselves apologetic or said, yeah, yeah, they rooted for me. And, and in the meantime, of course, Otherwise, I was just picking up the litter and people would see me do it. And believe me, believe me, that makes a difference. It makes an impact. You never know how much it does, but you know it will. So the very action of doing it and then seeing it clean, people are less likely to throw into it. Know that that's the truth as well. Yeah. So well, every individual can make a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. You know, not to put too fine a point on it, but one of my heroes, Robert F. Kennedy, said, "Each time a man or a person stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustice, they send forth a tiny ripple of hope." You know, and yes. and I think that yes. each of us have tiny ripples we can make there. And I think, you're, Nina, I think you are doing this. Okay, here's the big question: oh. Where can everybody go to uh, find out more about you and to buy your book? Oh, they could just go to the internet, and type up my name because it's so unique. There's few of me. <laughs> okay, so that's number one, Nina Montiano. Um, the other place uh, is my websites. I have a couple. 
Uh, there's ninamontiano.ca, which is about me and my writing. ninamontiano.me, which is about my coaching and my, again, writing tips for writers, would-be writers, etc. Has a right. lot of, it's a blog, so it has a lot of really good articles in there. Then about me and water is themeaningofwater.com. And that's all about water, water issues, uh, those types of things. A lot of, again, really good articles, informative articles on limnology and, and water issues and just water generally in science. Um, in terms of uh, this particular book, you can go for A Diary in the Age of Water, which is, uh, again, has a lot of good information on water and tells a really good story. So I've been told. Um, can be obtained uh, through Amazon. All, all the Amazons of the world are carrying it, it seems. It could, you can also get it uh, through the publisher themselves in Anna Publications in Toronto. And folks, of course, you didn't have to scribble all that down because it's all going to be in the show notes. You know, just look for it in the show notes wherever you get your pod or just go to mgopod.com. Uh, Nina Montiano, I could have spoken for another hour. I think this is so fascinating what you're doing. I love the way you are blending two, uh, two incredible things together. One is... Uh, teaching us and telling us and sharing with us uh, your passion for the ecology and the other is telling a ripping good story, which is the important part for, yeah. for readers too, right? So thank you, you so very much for joining us here on Mysterious Goings On. Thank you so much, Alex. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Mysterious Goings On. Don't forget we have a complete archive of all of our interviews, monologues, updates, live readings, dead readings. All of that stuff is available at mgopod.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to us so you never miss an episode. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the usual suspects. Please join us there. Again, don't forget, mgopod.com also has links where to find me on social media and how to get in touch in case you want to be a guest here on the show. Well, I think it's time that I move on for this week, but until next time, keep reading.